This morning is April 11th. It is Resurrection Sunday. Y'all know from Wednesday's teaching that uh, Jesus did not rise Sunday morning. When did Jesus rise? Saturday evening, which was the beginning of the first day of the week. And it's why when they got there on Sunday morning, one gospel says just before light. The other says early morning at light. Same time period we're talking about. He was not there. Uh, If y'all are in Matthew 28, this morning we're going to start with the resurrection account in Matthew 28. And then we're going to go on from there. There's a lot of things that we could call this message in the past when I've taught it. I've called it the death problem and the resurrection solution. I've called it a lot of things. But the bottom line is this is our blessed hope. What we're going to talk about this morning is the cornerstone of Christianity. Without experiencing this event, without understanding this event, something that's new that you may not have known is you're not qualified to preach the message because this is the message. Today, all kinds of things are being preached. Everything except the kingdom of heaven being set up on earth. Everything except our resurrection in Christ. That is the only message that Jesus and the apostles taught. You will never find in the Bible the phrase, die and go to heaven. It is not there. You will never see that as the emphasis of Jesus' preaching, of Paul's preaching, of any of the apostles' preaching. That is the only emphasis that the church today has. This morning we're going to examine the resurrection of Jesus, our resurrection in Jesus, and the hope of Christianity. If you set out on a destination, if you want to leave here and go somewhere for a vacation, it's necessary that you have a destination in mind. Well, our hope is our destination in Christ. If the destination is wrong, the journey is not going to be right. You can't set out for your hope being Austin. You're really supposed to go to New York and have the right journey. If you were supposed to go to New York and you end up headed towards Austin, you're on the wrong road. If Christianity has the wrong hope, if their goal is something other than the hope laid out in the Bible, then they're on the wrong journey. I'm not saying people aren't saved. I'm saying that they're severely misdirected. They may be looking for New York and they're headed west. You know. So this morning we're going to get that right. But I want to start actually in Matthew 27. Verse 57. Y'all do whatever it takes to get this this morning. This is the most important thing that we'll teach this year. So if you're tired, stand up, do jumping jacks. If you feel yourself zoning in and out, do whatever it takes to get this. Okay? I know it's hard to sit and hear a message, especially if it has a lot of reading in it. And this morning it will. But this is more important than learning microbiology. It's more important than anything else that you could do. And more than that, Our king died to get us this message. And he died as an example so that he could be raised for one purpose. And we'll read about that today. In Matthew 27, verse 57, it says, As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. Just so that you'll know, Arimathea was in the Judean area. Joseph was not just any normal guy. He was also on the Jewish council. Kind of like Nicodemus, who had had interest in Jesus 
But this guy actually got born again. Scripture doesn't tell us about Nicodemus, although church history says he was saved. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of a rock. Sometimes caves were used as tombs, natural forming caves. Sometimes sepulchers were used as tombs. That's why Paul called the high priest a whitewashed sepulcher, because they existed in those days. Those of us that have lived in Louisiana have seen sepulchers in New Orleans, above ground graves. It's not what Jesus was placed in. He was placed in a new tomb. In fact, Luke says one which a body had never been laid in, and it had been hewn from a rock. I've been to a tomb right outside the old city walls of Jerusalem where there was an ancient garden, which the scripture describes, where there is a hill very nearby with the face of a skull in it that is a possible site of the crucifixion, and that was hewn out of a rock. You can see that a hammer and chisel was used to create it right out of a rock. One of the things that separates Christianity from every other uh, religion that you could have whether we're talking about Mormons like the church right down the road, there is, for instance, in the Mormon Bible, there is no archaeological evidence, not one city that the Mormon Bible claims existed in the United States, which is North America, which is where the Book of Mormon took place. Not one existed today. It mentions animals that are not there. It mentions peoples that have, there's no ancestral record of, period. But when the Bible makes a claim, if it says a widow in the city of Nain had her son raised from the dead, there was a city of Nain. Here it mentions a tomb, and I think it's just amazing that it's been in our lifetime they found a tomb that matches this exact description. And you know what? It's not the one that the Roman church has built its synagogue of Satan on. It's not the one that the Roman church has made some kind of shrine. Isn't that amazing how God hides things from the proud, from the lofty, from those in power, but reveals it to the low and humble? Well, there's a reason. It's because when you have a visual representation of this, it becomes more real. The disciples had something. We're going to read about it today. They had an actual eyewitness account of Jesus' resurrection for one specific purpose. And we'll get into that. He rolled back a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after the preparation day, the chief priest and Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while, this, while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Why were they concerned? What concerned the Pharisees about him being raised from the dead? They had seen him raise Lazarus. And they, when they couldn't deny it, they wanted to kill Lazarus. They'd seen him do many miracles. But none of those would be as bad as if he himself were raised from the dead. They said that that would be worse than any other thing. And there's a reason for that. Y'all log that away in the back of your mind. And we'll see when we look at Jesus' teaching in light of this problem, 
If he was raised from the dead, the Pharisees' own testimony said that would be worse than any other teaching that he had ever given. There's a reason for that. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing, by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other women went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. It's interesting that just... Yeah, they fainted, baby. It's interesting that just a few days earlier, Jesus stood before Pilate, and Pilate had the idea that Pilate had the power to put Jesus to death. And we've, we taught about that on Wednesday. But the idea is, here's Jesus, weak, lowly Jesus, and the power of the Roman Empire was going to do something. The power of the Pharisees were going to do something. Notice that when just one angel, and Jesus said he had more than 12 legions, but when just one angel showed up, what did the guards do? They shook, became so scared, they were like dead men. It does not matter what natural force opposes us in Christianity. What natural force stands against the kingdom of God. They will crumble and fall off like charred flax. The whole life of Samson was intended to prove this. It's why one man could defeat an entire army of men with a jawbone of an ass. It's why one man in a temple to a foreign god could overcome with one action an entire nation of Philistines. With one action. This was to teach us that God does not rule. He does not need your strength, your power, your might. One angel and these guards that they put there became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as He said. Come and see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see Him. Now I have told you. Isn't it interesting how the angel reacts to the people? He says, look, look, don't be scared. I'm here. Jesus is risen just as he said. Now, you need to go tell the disciples and then tell them to meet him in Galilee. Because that's what Jesus said he was going to do. He said, now I've told you. Okay, my mission's done. He was there to tell them. Now his mission's over. It was not, it's kind of curt, huh? It's almost like, look, I came, I told you, now I'm done, all right? Bye. His message was to get the disciples this message. And then he doesn't have a role in it anymore. You know why? The angels of God are not the heirs of salvation. They're not the recipients of this great blessing. It is not their job to be emissaries to the nations. It is not their job to spread the gospel. That job fell to mankind. All of the temple worship, all of the carrying of the ark, all of the bringing the ark up onto Mount Zion in David's day, David's fallen tabernacle, all of those things were to convey one message to you. The glory of God is supposed to rest on your shoulders so that you will be witnesses. That is the purpose. The angel didn't come to bring the good news to everybody. He came to tell them, hey guys, you need to go confirm the good news so you can go tell people. 
So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. It's important to note about Jesus and about Christianity this fundamental difference from all other religions. Jesus, who is declared with power to be God, the fullness of the Godhead being in Him, Him being the exact representation of the Father, declares that you are His brothers. He is a man who has made it into the Godhead. And the Bible says He's the first man to do so. Now, He's the first one to do so, implying that there will be others who will follow Him. Now, none of us will hold His position. He's God. We are His brothers, though. We are going to be united in the family of God as brothers of the Christ, as members of the Anointed One. Y'all, that's wild. Everything else presents this way. There is someone who's great, someone who's lifted up, and you lowly, meager, meager people need to work by human effort to obtain some standing similar but less than. The way that the world structures its authority and its power is someone's great, everybody else is underneath. The way the kingdom is structured, though, is that Jesus obtained greatness because He loved not His life unto death, but He served God with all of His heart, His soul, His mind, and His strength so that He is the exact representation of God and that in doing so, He creates a way for you to become His brother. He didn't call them disciples, those under discipline. He didn't call them apostles, those being sent. He considered them His brothers. The God of the universe was not ashamed to call other men His brothers. That's amazing. That in itself is good news, but that's not what we're here for this morning. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city report and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole Him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Friends, the, the soldiers saw with their own eyes what had happened. And yet for a sum of money, they began to preach a different gospel. For one sum of money and the pressure of people around them, they changed their story. You have been exposed to the real gospel. The forces of this world will try to intimidate you out of that gospel. They will try to trick you, try to be condescending to you to get you to divert from it. There may even be those in so-called Christianity that would pay you to preach something other than this gospel. In fact, our whole nation, for the most part, has got a gospel other than the one that we are preaching. Because it's attractive. Because it sells books. Because it builds buildings. Because it gives nice gymnasiums and bowling alleys. All for doing good. The knowledge of good and evil is what killed mankind. 
I don't want to just do good. I want to be led by God's Spirit. That's the only thing that really is good. And I will not sell out Jesus, His resurrection, or the true testimony for any sum of money or any pressure of man. If we preach to a handful, to a handful we will preach. But that talent, those sums of money, if you will, that God has given me, I'm going to prove faithful over. Deliver you to the one I promised you to. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, get this, this is the closing part of Matthew. This will complete our study of Matthew, and then we're going to move on to this topic. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You want to know who Jesus is? He is the man to which God has granted all authority in heaven and on earth to the point where he represents God and is declared to be God. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. You go make disciples. How do you do so? You teach people to obey the words that Jesus gave them. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. This event, the resurrection, was the crowning or finishing experience that they needed to be competent witnesses. Now, there's one more thing that's lacking, but it's not an experience. It's a, it's a clothing of power. It is an endowment of power from on high. And they had to wait for that. But as far as knowledge, instruction, and, and experience with Jesus, something had to happen before they could be sent to the nations. And that was they had to witness Jesus' resurrection. Why on earth would that be so important? He said He was going to resurrect. Why wouldn't it be enough for them to simply hear that He did? Why wouldn't it be enough for them to have the testimony of others that He did? If He raised other people from the dead, why was it important for them to see His resurrection? The crowning experience for them was to know for certain that the One who had come to give them these words had in fact Risen from the dead. Well, why is that so important? Why couldn't they just know He died and went to heaven? Because the message that they would preach would be, He rose and we rise in Him. Still, why is that important? Turn with me to Genesis. I promise I will not stay in Genesis long. I'm going to make this very simple rather than reading all of chapter 2 and 3. I'm going to give you the two major points here. Why is it important that they see that Jesus was raised before they go and tell the nations to obey His words? Well, Genesis 2.15 introduces a problem. Actually, a, a royal or divine law. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat... From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Man was told something by God that man was disobedient to. And what was the result of that disobedience? 
he would die. Now, before chapter 2, verse 15, is there any other such command? There's not. Turn with me to chapter 3. In chapter 3, we saw that man did, in fact, eat of it. And so, as God said, because His Word is true, death entered mankind. But there is a promise in Genesis 3, and it's Genesis 3.15. This is God speaking to the woman about her offspring and this power that deceived her. And I will put enmity, that means warfare, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, everybody who was standing there understood that to mean that God was going to crush this power of death that entered mankind. We know that because verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living, all the living. The problem that entered mankind was through man's disobedience, death came. That was the problem that plagued mankind. It's where the Bible starts. The Bible was not intended to give you the history of the dinosaurs. It was not intended to tell you what happened before the pre-Adamite flood. It was not intended to give you a scientific breakdown of how the continents spread around the earth and became the distances they are and why the global plates are shifting now and why plate tectonics exist. It was not here to do any of those things, although the Bible gives you much insight into all of those things. That's not its purpose. Its purpose was to tell you that man was created, he was put onto an earth. Once he was put on that earth and in a garden, he was given a command that he was disobedient to. So one problem entered mankind. Through man's disobedience, death came upon all men. That is the purpose of the book of Genesis, is to introduce that single problem to you. So that you would understand why we're in a state of decay. Why things are eating each other around us. Why you get sick. Why we have the problems we do. What is the Bible about? It's about the fact that God put a man on the earth and that that one man brought death to all men. Now, you may not have heard that very much, but that's the central theme of the Bible. Combined with this fact. There is a solution that is offered at the same time the problem was. There would be a man, since death came through a man, also life would come through a man. There would be one who would come from a woman. Could not just descend from heaven. Could not be the product of Lucy or some other kind of ape-like creature that evolved. This thing had to come from Eve. Could not have come from an amoeba. Could not have come from any angel. Could not be a Nephilim. Had to come from Eve's body. Had to be a descendant of Eve. Who would crush the power that was now working against man. It's not crush the head of a snake. Men have been doing that for centuries. Every time I see one, I crush the head of a snake. I, I hate them. Don't like them. Never have. Men have been killing snakes since the very beginning of the, the creation. So that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a warfare between mankind and what opposes us. And what stands opposed to us is death. And death has no power except sin. The disobedience that caused it. 
the crowning event in the disciples' life that qualified them, that made them ready to be clothed with power so that they could go out and preach, was to see Jesus raised. Because the problem that came upon mankind was death. Let's look at Jesus' words and it will get clearer and clearer to you. And after today, if you've ever seen this differently, you will never see this in another light. John 5, that's a bold statement, isn't it? Y'all in John? We're going to read some lengthy passages today because I don't find it necessary to truncate Jesus' words so that we can get to Piccadilly faster. I don't find it necessary to abbreviate the very words that were intended to give us life for the sake of a clock on our wall. We're going to study what Jesus said until it gets deep down in us so that what is in us can begin working outside of us. It is not enough for you to know this. You must become a competent conversant on this subject. And you know what? It is not hard. Everything that was revealed about Noah, about Shem, about Abraham, about Isaac, about Jacob, about Judah, about the Christ, about all of Israel, about the apostles, all of those teachings were for one simple thing. There was a problem and it was death and there is a solution. How does man get to life and what is that life? That's what the Bible's about. We don't have to understand all of the nine covenants, although I'm happy to. We'll teach on, we'll do all of that. We don't have to understand Israel's unique place in history to understand what happened to mankind and how mankind gets out of it. And although there were many special promises given to many special people, this promise was given to all of mankind. It did not belong to Israel alone. That's how the Scripture saw in advance, prior to the law, prior to anything else, that the Gentiles would be justified by faith. Because all you had to do was believe that through the woman would come somebody who would crush this power that stood opposed to you. Now, it was given to one special nation, many promises, many covenants, and the word that preserved this. But all mankind was given that promise. Does that make sense to you? Okay, in John 5, we're going to hear Jesus' own testimony about his preaching, about his teaching. If you hear the words in here, die and go to heaven then you can stand up and slap me with a chair now. But that is not what Jesus preached about, and it should not be what we preach about. You know, this little fairy tale that says, you know, believe on Jesus, you die, you go to heaven. As true as that may be, that is not what Christianity is about. And we do Jesus a disservice, and we change His words and His gospel if that's all we share. That is an incomplete story. It's, it's like describing Jennifer and saying, Jennifer has ten toes. That is a true statement, but that is not an accurate description of Jennifer. That does not describe her so that you might know her, so that you might recognize her. Saying simply, believe on Jesus and go to heaven. Well, what am I believing and why? Am I just believing that He existed? No, the demons do that. Am I believing His Word? Well, sure. But what was His Word? It's in John 5. Starting in verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by Himself. 
He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. What did Jesus just say? He is able to give life to those he's pleased to give it to. In light of Genesis, why is that important? That's important because every mankind, every person in mankind suffers from the same ailment. You die. One may have cataracts and another a hearing problem and a third a urinary infection. All of those things are great. They can be treated by medicine. They can be healed supernaturally. But thus far, despite all man's medical improvements, our mortality rate is still a hundred percent. There is no pill that cures death. Not even a Catholic Eucharist cures death. There is no magic pill that cures death. You have to get life from the man who God was pleased to give the power of life to. Jesus said he would give life to whomever he was pleased to give it to. Now that's a huge bold statement. For Jesus to stand up and say, hey, the son has life in himself and I can give it to whoever I'm pleased to. Even raising somebody from the dead is not proof enough. Because he said not that he could raise one person from the dead. He said he had life in himself and he could give it to whomever he was pleased to give it to. If you're thinking you might already know where I'm going with this, the only way to prove that is for him to fall under the power of death and raise out of it himself. He has to show that within him is the power over death more than anything else. Finish this chapter in that light. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears My words and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. Jesus said he had life in himself. He could give it to whoever he wanted to. And the way to get it was to believe his words. And will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. All mankind was under the power of death. But believing that Jesus had life in himself. And the requirement for accepting that life was believing the word that he gave you. Believing it by acting on it then you would be said to have crossed over from death, or Adam, into life, who is the Christ. I tell you the truth, a time is coming, and has now come, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now he just said, if you believe him, if you hear him and believe him, that you would have life. And he said, a time is coming, and has now come. We're speaking about two different times. A time in the future and the time that has now come when the dead will hear him and have life. 
What on earth could that mean? There is a time in the future that he's fixing to talk about that is the resurrection of the dead that all of the Bible is about. And there is a time right then as he's speaking that if you believe him and you hear his words, you are said to have life. You're marked for the resurrection. Does that make sense? A time is coming and a time has now come. Two different times. One is a spiritual fulfillment and the other is when it actually occurs. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to judge because He is the Son of Man. Judge what? We know He judges every action, but that's not what He's saying. Jesus Himself has the power of life He Himself makes the judgment of whether or not you get to have life in you or whether you stay under the power of death that you were born in. You want to know what the concept of original sin is? It's the fact that when you're born, when you are born, you're under the power of death, simply put. Everything else is the power of death or sin working in you. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I do not seek to please myself, but Him who sent me. We're going to keep going to verse 40. Did you hear that? He said, a time is coming and has now come. He described the time he was in, and then he said the time is coming and described a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. That is the hope of Israel. That's the hope of the church. That is the hope of mankind, that there will be a resurrection of the righteous and of the wicked. I testify, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was given as a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. Get this. Jesus is not asking you to believe Him because of His words. He's not asking you to believe Him because others said something about Him. He's asking you to believe that He has life in Himself because He is going to prove it through the things that He does. The last thing that He did as proof was that He Himself, the one who claimed to have the authority to give life, was raised from the dead to show that He, in fact, had the power of life. See, His resurrection is what proved that He was who He said He was. That's why the apostles had to be witnesses of that fact. And the Father who sent me has Himself testified concerning me. You have never heard His voice, nor seen His form, nor does His word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one He sent. You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about Me, yet you refuse to come to Me to go to heaven. It's not what it says, is it? 
You refuse to come to me to have life. The Pharisees thought that by their studying of the law, by their studying, memorizing of the Scripture, and by trying to live out the principles of the law, that they would escape death and enter into life. They understood that this life would occur on earth in a kingdom in which Israel was chief among the nations and there was an eternal prince. They understood that. We're going to see that before the end of this message. But they refused to come to the one man that God had given the authority to grant life. They thought that by studying the Scriptures they could obtain it, but they would not go to the one that God granted the authority to have life. So why would they say this last deception of His, this this if He's raised from the dead would be worse than anything else that He taught? Because it by itself proved that He was the one that they refused to go to to get life. And that He was right. Paul picks up on this in Athens, and we're going to read it. When he's teaching about Jesus, when he's sharing the gospel with somebody that had never heard it, he begins teaching by saying, hey, there's a God that's let all men go all their way. But in these last days, he appointed one man to be the judge of the living and the dead. And he proved this by raising him from the dead. Everybody's excited this morning because Jesus was raised from the dead, but they don't even know why. You should be excited because this is proof that Jesus has the authority to give you life. And the gospel that we preach does not stop with Jesus being raised from the dead. He was raised to prove He had the authority to give you life. Well, what does it mean when you have life? What is that? Is that just life now that we're excited? Is that just that you raise from the dead one day to go to heaven? Not at all. Turn to John 6. Starting in verse 29, Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe the one He has sent. So they asked Him, What miraculous sign then will you give us that we may see and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert, and as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're quoting Scripture to the man that is the Word. They're asking Jesus, What will you do for us? He's been feeding them. But they said, what will you do for us? Moses gave us manna. They're quoting to him the Scripture that was testifying about him. So Jesus answers them. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Why did Jesus come? We say to save the world. We quote John 3.16. No, He came to give life to those He was pleased to give it to in the world. And that those sons of creation, when revealed, would set the power of death on its heels running until it was put down, and that would redeem the world. The whole world. That God would be all in all. Have you ever wondered why God desired to save the whole world and, and we only see Christians being saved? It's because the Christians become the force in the millennial reign that bring life to the whole world. That see the creation liberated from its bondage to decay. We put down every enemy of God. And the last one to be put down is death. So, well, not everybody's saved. Some go to hell. That's part of saving the world. Weeding out the weeds and taking in the wheat. 
If I want to restore, which is the same word as save. Did you all know that? Restore, save, and heal. They're the same words in both Greek and in Hebrew. If I want to restore a car, I grind off the rust and I repaint it. Some people are destined to be rust. Just old dead stuff hanging on to prevent life. When you meet them and you identify them as that, that swine you don't throw pearls to. You go find those that are trapped that want restoration, not those that are trying to decay like cancer. See, our job is not to run out and convince people that they should be saved. It's to find the ones that want liberation from what they're in and show them how to be saved. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never grow hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Now get this. Verse 39 could not be more important. And this is the will of him who sent me. What's the will of God? That I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. What is being raised up at the last day? It's the resurrection. The will of God is that in Jesus, people would be raised up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. You've heard all of your life that what eternal life was, was going to heaven. That is not what the Scripture says. You know why? Because we do not go to heaven for an eternity. Therefore, it's not eternal. If you go to heaven now before He returns, you are coming back to the earth with Him. Eternal life is to have an eternal body. That is the Gospel. An eternal body. How many times have you even heard the word glorified body in churches before you came into this one? People preach, believe Jesus, and go to heaven. They preach a rapture where you fly up into heaven. But nobody even talks about the problem that came on mankind, which is that your body dies. The solution for that is that you believe the words of Jesus. He gives your body life. You get a body that doesn't die. He had said that his whole ministry. That's why it was important that he raise in a body that never die. To prove that what he had preached, which is that he had the power of life to give you a body that wouldn't die, was true by himself doing it. I can say, hey, I can slam dunk a basketball. And I can say it all day long, but you don't have to believe me until you see me do it. They didn't have to believe Jesus until they saw Him do it. But once we became witnesses of that fact, then that was the message that they went out and preached. One man has been given the authority to have life in himself. He can give you a body that will never die. How do you know that? I know it because I saw Him. And I feel that power working in me. Y'all, where is this? Why has it been hidden? It's been hidden because people do not love the truth. 
They want what they want, which is donuts, Sunday school, and basketball gyms. And we may have all three of those things one day, but it will never be the focus of this ministry. Never. I want to preach the gospel that the apostles preached. I want to preach the gospel that the book of Acts records so that our hope is set on the same things that the Bible hope is set on. Not some fairy tale that was made up by a church that was shallow in its, its faith. It may have been okay, and, I, and I'm saying this as a way out for people that will hear this and have always believed simply that we die and go to heaven. That may have been okay in times past. But those of us that are nearer now than when we first believed cannot simply believe die and go to heaven because we're waiting for the appearing of the Christ. And there are there is a generation that will be on the earth that will never see heaven outside of the earth. They will only see heaven being set up on earth. They will never go to live on a cloud or wherever it is people think that it is. Never. There is a generation that will simply see Jesus return, their bodies will be changed, and the kingdom of heaven will be established on earth. So if for centuries people have believed the wrong thing, that's okay. They were of the generations that were going to wait in heaven until they could come back to the earth. But if we really believe that we are nearing the generation of His return, it is time for a change. It is a time for a restoration of the original gospel. Let's put aside this fairy tale. Let's put aside the trash that has entangled us and the fog that has crept into Christianity to keep us from seeing clearly. You wonder why these books sell so well? Because people aren't reading this book. They're hearing what some six-foot-tall icicle gives them in three points in a poem and wants them to believe. The church that began with a reformation, with a breaking away from an oppressive regime that would not allow them to read the Word, has lost its love for the Word. Wycliffe and Tyndall and Huss and Luther would spit on the American church today because people do not read the Word. They do not understand. And if Wycliffe and Tyndall and Huss and Luther and all those guys didn't have some of this, they only got to read the Word for a portion of their lives. You have been immersed in it your whole life. You've had access to a Bible in your language your whole life. And your parents did. And their parents did. Because of the work of other men of God. And we take it for granted. The same way if you have to buy your first car. If you have to save pennies. When you get that car, no matter what shape it's in, you love it. You protect it. You wash it. Well, the generations that went before us fought for this Word so it was precious to them. You've been given it. And so it's not precious to you. It needs to be. We need to know what it says so that we are not deceived. Thessalonians says there is a powerful delusion coming upon the world so that even the elect would be deceived if it were possible. But the way not to be deceived is love truth. Because the ones that are deceived, Thessalonians says, are deceived because they loved not the truth. I want to love the truth. I don't care who it indicts. I don't care who indicts me because of it. I will cling to that which I know is the Scripture and reject everything else. No matter how harsh it makes me look, no matter how non-compliant, how esoteric, how cultish, how whatever people want to say, I will make my stand on the Word of God while others stand on the traditions of men. I cannot do it. 
And I suspect if the congregations out there knew that what they were receiving was not the pure gospel, they would revolt. But because of a lazy, apathetic spirit, they don't know because they are not reading. The only message they hear is what they hear on Sunday. So they have subjugated their knowledge of the gospel, their ability to hear from God, to one person who stands behind a pulpit. I would never ask you to do such a thing. I want you all to study. I hope there are times you strongly disagree with me. I hope you come with a clenched fist and a Bible in that fist and want to prove that I'm wrong about anything that you desire. Because that's how learning takes place. When is the last time you saw that in a Sunday morning service? When is there ever even a point of contention? They've got this thing so greasy, so sloppy, that it just slides right on by the people. Nobody cares. It just pacifies the conscience and numbs the masses. And it does more harm than a Satanist church could ever do. Because it keeps people from receiving the truth. They think they already have it.